Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Oli, and I'm going to be speaking to you this morning about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the difference that knowing Jesus makes in our lives. And I wonder, before I even start this morning, what your immediate reaction to that news is, to the news that for the next 15 minutes, you're going to be listening to me talking about nothing less than the most foundational truths in the Christian faith. Maybe you're feeling anxious. What am I going to say? What demands are going to be placed on you? Maybe you're ready to be offended. Perhaps you're uh, intrigued. Maybe you're excited. I just wonder whether there might be some people listening to me this morning and your reaction to hearing that this morning's message is about the gospel is to say, yeah, but I've, I've kind of got that already. I know this stuff. Maybe you've been a Christian quite a long time. I wonder there might even be people listening to me who have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And there's a tendency, isn't there, for us to think sometimes that, that thinking about the good news of Jesus is something that's really important to do if you're not yet a Christian or if you're in the early stages of your Christian life, perhaps for the first few uh, weeks, months, or maybe a couple of years, but that after a while you get your head around that and you can tick it off and move on to weightier and more challenging theological topics. I know that's something that I've felt myself a couple of times. But I've become increasingly convinced over recent years, and more so than ever over recent weeks as I've been preparing this message, that contemplating the gospel, marveling again at what Jesus has done for us, is such a crucial thing for us to do, regardless of how long we've been walking with Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to come before the cross and marvel again at what he's done for us. And we're going to be using for that, um, I think, one of the most amazing passages of Scripture in the whole Bible, and that's Ephesians chapter 2. So while you turn to uh, Ephesians 2 in your own Bibles, uh, let me, by way of introduction, just say fairly unsurprisingly, Ephesians 2 comes straight after Ephesians 1. Uh, and Ephesians 1 is this magnificent description of who God is and what he's done. And it crescendos, I think, uh, in verse 20 when it says, And God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And then to contrast that, Ephesians chapter 2 starts with a description of us. It says this, But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, like everybody else, we were by nature objects of wrath. It doesn't make for easy reading that, does it? The Bible is plain, painfully blunt about the effects of sin on our lives. But we can't gloss over this. We need to notice these things if we're to truly understand who we are. I used to uh, work with a guy who had a reputation for being healthy. He did a lot of exercise, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink very much, he had a healthy diet. Um, and he and I got along relatively well. I guess we would talk most days. And over several years, in all of those conversations, neither he nor I knew that something was deeply wrong inside him. Everything looked okay on the outside. And in fact, as I said, he had this reputation for being healthy. But he had a vulnerability or a disease, if you like, in his heart. And so one day he was at work in his office and with no warning whatsoever, his heart stopped. And he collapsed to the ground 
uh, not breathing, no heartbeat, alone, helpless, hopeless, and lifeless. And this story mirrors, I think, the Bible's description of what sin does to us. It kills us spiritually. See, all of us have this this, uh, urge inside us, this natural need to look for something, anything to scratch the itch that we feel. We crave uh, money and power and sex and status and happiness and peace. And our search for those things in the world brings us no more than fleeting moments of enjoyment. Occasions where everything feels kind of okay for a bit, but there's no lasting satisfaction. We run away from a God who loves us. And with a tragic irony, we go looking for what only he can provide anywhere other than in him. And this rejection of God, this self-serving desire to meet my own needs is what the Bible calls sin. And sin, the Bible says, is lethal. We might feel all right in some ways. It might look okay in some ways, but we've separated ourselves from the God of life. And so we're already spiritually dead. And this, this spiritual death is universal. We know that physical death will come to all of us at some point, don't we? We know that all of us eventually, uh, our lives will end. And so it is with spiritual death. So if you're offended this morning by this description of a life without Jesus, a spiritual death, if you're hurt to be, to be told and to notice that in the Bible it says that if you don't accept what Jesus is offering to you, then you're no more than a spiritual corpse, then at least know this. It's not personal. This is a description of the human condition. This is true of all of us. All of us have sinned. Death is universal, and so it is with spiritual death. And as well as being universal, death is absolute. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm quite interested when I hear stories about archaeologists that have dug up ancient Egyptian mummies. These guys have been dead for 3,000 years, and they're pretty dead, aren't they? You couldn't confuse them for a living person. But they're not more dead than someone who died yesterday. You can't console the relatives of somebody who's just passed away by saying, well, don't worry, they're not as dead as an ancient Egyptian mummy. On the one hand, that's deeply insensitive. And on the other hand, it's not even true, is it? Death is death. And so there's no good us looking at ourselves and saying, things are okay because I can point to somebody who's got more sin in their lives than me. that's, That's not true because all sin and any sin kills us spiritually. And we have all sinned. So as the Bible says here, we were by nature objects of God's righteous, holy, just, but terrifying and terrible wrath. It's not good news. All of us by nature are as lifeless and as helpless spiritually as my colleague was in his office that day. And so there he lay. Now, it just so happened that on that day, one of my other colleagues needed to talk to him. And she picked near enough that moment to go to his office and speak to him. And we don't know exactly how long he'd been lying there, but it can't have been longer than a couple of minutes when she arrived. And she knew a bit of first aid, and so she checked for signs of life and found nothing. No breathing, no heartbeat, nothing. She phoned an ambulance and started CPR, and by her quick actions and the wonders of modern medicine, I guess, they managed to get his heart started again. And then there was this moment a few months later, it was probably about three months later, something like that. We were all sat together in in a whole staff meeting, and he was there. And he was given an opportunity to stand up to speak. And as he came up to the front, it was one of those kind of hair on the back of your neck standing up moments of really exciting. What's he going to say? I wonder, what do you think he opened with? How do you think he started his talk? Do you think he started by congratulating himself about how clever he'd been to overcome uh, cardiac arrest, how strong his heart must be to be able to do this? Of course not. 
Do you think he started by showing off how wise he'd been to choose to have his cardiac arrest just moments before somebody was going to come into his office? And not just anybody, but someone who could uh, perform the first aid that would be needed to save his life. Well, no, of course he didn't. He stood up with a humility that only really comes from knowing that this is your story. And he acknowledged, this is, uh, my life was lost. And it's only because of you that I'm alive. I should be dead, but you gave me my life back. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you get it? I mean, do you, do you really get it? This God, so full of love, so rich in mercy, is the one that my sin and your sin rejected. The one we didn't want to know. And he's not just anybody, he's the high king of heaven, the great I am. He's sovereign over the entire universe. He's the creator of galaxies. He sits outside time, unencumbered by any limitation. And his holiness is pure, spotless, untouchable perfection. And yet he looked at me and he looked at you, dead in our sins because of the choices that we'd made, because of the things that we wanted. And he loved us enough to come and get us. And as Jesus was lifted up onto the cross, the terrible wrath of God that I had earned for myself was put onto him. And as he breathed his last, the death that my sin earned for me, he paid. The Bible says he was crushed for me and for you if you're a believer this morning as well. And then three days later, gloriously, he rose from the grave so that as a consequence of his death and his rising again, he can take away my death. But not just that, he can offer me something in return. He offers me life. And not just any life, but his life, his full, abundant, rich, glorious life. And that's why the Bible doesn't just describe that God raised us from the dead and left us in the corner in our office. Now, he, he gently offered us his hand and lifted us up to seat us in heavenly places. We are in Christ. So where's my seat in heaven? It's Jesus' seat. So when the Bible says that Jesus sits at God's right hand, I sit at God's right hand. When the Bible says that everything has been placed under Jesus' feet, everything has been placed under my feet. And the same is true of you if you're a Christian this morning. Whether it feels like it or not, the truest truth, the most real reality, is that you are alive in Christ in heavenly places. Isn't that glorious? Do you see how magnificent that is? And what did we do to deserve this? What did we do to earn it? We did nothing. It was all God. Everything was him. All we've done is accepted what he has offered to us. And before we start congratulating ourselves for what a wise decision that was, let's remember that the Bible says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. 
So yes, we exercised our free choice to accept the gift of God, but he was four billion years ahead of you. And we needed faith to exercise that choice, but that faith, the Bible says clearly, is a gift from God. What can we conclude? We conclude that my position in Christ, my life in him, my salvation is 100% God's doing and 0% my doing. Not 98% God's doing or 99% God's doing. God didn't meet me halfway. It was all him. And how do I know it was all him? Because I was spiritually dead and corpses can't do anything. And that's why Paul uses the word grace three times in these few short verses. Grace, that unmerited, unwarranted, undeserved, but lavish and generous gift of God. Do you get it? Have you, have you really grasped this? I don't know about you, but I feel like I've got some more grasping to do. I've been a Christian near enough my whole life, and, and I feel like I can say that I understand the gospel today better than I ever have before, but I still feel like there's new revelation for me to fully understand how far Jesus crossed to go from the glories and the splendors of heaven to come and die in my place. And I feel like there's more mystery for me to uncover about what it means and how far I cross to go from spiritual death to life in Christ, uh, seated in heavenly places. And it's no bad thing that I've got more grasping to do. Because if the story of my life is that day by day and week by week, month by month and year by year, I grow in my love of Jesus and my understanding of what he's done for me, then that's a life well lived. Why? Because it fuels our worship. It's good for us to thank God for the stuff we've got, right? It's good for us to thank God for our our houses and our jobs and our families and our friends. That's fine. But the kind of worship that God requires is the kind of worship that says all of me, everything I have and everything I am, every breath, it's all yours. And that kind of worship comes from knowing that I was dead and he made me alive. It fuels our worship and it inspires our mission. See, we've been given a holy and divine mission to live our lives in this world, interacting with people at the school gates and in our workplaces and in our families and our friendship groups. And some of those people, the Bible says, are still spiritually dead. And we're given a a mandate from God to show them the love and the life of Jesus, to talk to them about what he's done. And we will only understand the urgency and the responsibility and the immense privilege that that is if we increasingly gain an understanding of what it means for us to have gone from spiritual death to life in Christ. Do you know, I'm, I'm out of time, but I can't finish this morning without speaking to you directly if you're listening to me and you don't know Jesus for yourself. As I've been talking this morning, have you felt him calling you? Have you felt the tug on your heart this morning? You'll know if it's you. If you have, I urge you, don't ignore this. Don't pretend like it's not happening. I'm going to pray in a minute. And when I do, if that's you, I would urge you to join me in your heart. We're going to pray together. If you pray this prayer for the first time this morning, don't do that without telling anybody. Please tell uh, a Christian that you know, whoever invited you this morning, or email the church office. We would love to support you. Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, what can we say to you but thank you? Thank you doesn't seem anywhere near enough. Father, we acknowledge humbly before you that without you, we would be dead in our sins. 
But Father, we choose this morning to accept from you the gift of life, knowing that there is nothing we could do to earn that, knowing that it's all by your grace. And whether we are accepting that for the first time or the millionth time this morning, Jesus, we thank you. Amen.